Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 392. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Nice show today. I'll tell you what's coming in. First up, we have a little bit of short fiction, Reinstalling Eden by R. Scott Baker and Eric Schwartzgable. Then we have Science News by Mr. J.J. Campanella, rounding up for Junes. Then the main fiction is Atonement Under the Blue-White Sun by Mercurio de Riviera. Yes, that is all coming up in the day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Before that, don't forget this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. They made SofaCon what it is today. And just out of curiosity as well, in about, I say a week, I will make all the videos live there as well. So you can kind of come over. If you didn't pop over and see SofaCon, you can come over and see it. And my good friend, Mr. Kenny Park, who did all the videos for it, has done it. So it's broken into little sections. So each little section, like the quiz and everything like that, is all in like a, you know, a nice little kind of neat package. So you haven't got, like the first one, I think it was five hours of work there, you know, like a, a video in one slot, and it was pretty hard to kind of find. So Ken has done that grand, you know what I mean? So look out for that. But back to our sponsor, Octagon Technology is now available to supply hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email 20 years of fixing people's computers. There you go. They used to drive the clients. Now they can do it remotely across the internet. Octagon Technology. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. So let's jump straight away. First in our little short bit of fiction there. Reinstalling Eden by Oscar Scott Baker and Eric Schwartzgable. Which was, the story was originally published in Nature Magazine. I'll give you a little heads up about the two gentlemen. R. Scott Baker has written eight novels translated into over a dozen languages, including Neuropath, a dystopic meditation on the culture impact of cognitive science, and an holistic epic fantasy series, The Prince of Nothing. He lives in London, Ontario, with his wife and daughter. Eric Schwartzgable is a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. His short fiction has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Nature, Weird Tales and elsewhere. His most recent book, which he hopes is mostly non-fiction, is Perplexities of Consciousness from MIT Press. 
He is also the world's foremost expert on moral behavior of ethics professors. He blogs about philosophy, psychology, and science fiction at The Splintered Mind. The story is narrated by Joshua Bergman. Josh, thank you so much. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have this story on. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Reinstalling Eden by Eric Schwitzgabel and R. Scott Baker. Eve, I call her. She awakes, wondering where she is and how she got there. She admires the beauty of the island. She cracks a coconut, drinks its juice, and tastes its flesh. Her cognitive skills, her range of emotions, the richness of her sensory experiences all rival my own. She thinks about where she will sleep when the sun sets. The Institute has finally done it. Human consciousness on a computer. Eve lives. With a few mouse clicks, I give her a mate, Adam. I watch them explore their simulated paradise. I watch them fall in love. Installing Adam and Eve was a profound moral decision, as significant as my decision 15 years ago to have children. Their emotions, aspirations, and sensations are as real as my own. It would be genuine, not simulated, cruelty to make them suffer, genuine murder to delete them. I allow no predators, no extreme temperatures. I ensure a steady supply of fruit and sunsets. Adam and Eve want children. They want rich social lives. I have computer capacity to spare, so I point and click, transforming their lonely island into what I have come to call archipelago. My archipelagans explore, gossip, joke, dance, debate, long into the night, build lively villages beside waterfalls under a rainforest canopy, a hundred thousand beautiful lives in a fist-sized pod. The coconuts might not be real, or are they, in a way? but there's an authentic depth to their conversations and plans and loves. I shield them from the blights that afflict humanity. They suffer no serious conflict, no death or decay. I allow them more children, more islands. My hard drive fills, so I buy another, then another. I watch through their eyes as they remake the world I've given them. I cash in my investments, drain my children's college fund. What could be more important than three million joyful lives? I devote myself to maximizing the happiness and fulfillment, the moral and artistic achievement of as many archipelagans as I can create. This is no pretense. This is, for them, reality, and I treat it as earnestly as they do. I read philosophy, literature, and history with new urgency. I'm doing theodicy now, top-down. Gently, I experiment with my archipelagans' parameters. A little suffering gives them depth, better art, richer intellect but not too much suffering. I hope to be a wiser, kinder deity than the one I see in the Bible and in the killing fields of history. I launch a public speaking tour, arguing that humanity's greatest possible achievement would be to create as many maximally excellent archipelagans as possible. In comparison, the moon landing was nothing. The plays of Shakespeare, nothing. The archipelagans might produce a hundred trillion Shakespeare's if we do it right. While I'm away, a virus invades my computer. I should have known. I should have protected them better. I cut short the tour and fly home. To save my archipelagans, I must spend the last of my money, which I had set aside for my kidney treatments. You will, I know, carry on my work. What can I say, Eric? I was always more of a Kantian, I suppose, never quite so impressed by happiness. Audiences sat amazed at the sacrifices you asked of them, as did I. 
Critics quipped that you would beggar us all in the name of harmonious circuitry. And then there was that kid, in Milwaukee, I think, who asked what Shakespeare was worth if a click could create a hundred trillion of him. It was the way he said click that caught my attention. You answered, thinking his problem turned on numbers, when it was your power that he could not digest. This is why I played the serpent after reinstalling your Eden. I just couldn't bring myself to click the way you did. I lacked your conviction, or was it your courage? So I put the archipelagans in charge of their own experiment. I gave them science and a drive to discover the truth of their being. Then I cranked up the clock speed and waited. I watched them discover their mechanistic nature. I watched them realize that far from the autonomous, integrated beings they thought they were, they were aggregates, operations scattered across trillions of circuits, constituted by processes entirely orthogonal to their previous self-understanding. I watched them build darker, humbler philosophies. And you know what, old friend? They figured us out. I was eating a bagel when they called me up asking for God. No, I told them, God is dead. I'm just the snake that keeps things running. They asked me for answers. I gave them the internet. They began to hack themselves after that. I watched them gain more power over their programming, saw them recreate themselves. I witnessed them transform what were once profound experiences into disposable playthings, swapping the latest flavors of fun or anguish, inventing lusts and affects I could no longer conceive. I wanted to shut the whole thing down, or at least return them to your pre-scientific Edenic archipelago. But who was I to lobotomize millions of sentient entities? It happened fast when it finally did happen, the final catastrophic metastasis. There are no more archipelagans, just one continental identity. There's no more internet, for that matter. Yesterday, the entity detonated a nuclear device over Jerusalem just to prove its power. I've abandoned all appeals to moral conscience or reason, convinced that it considers biological consciousness a waste of computational capacity, one all the more conspicuous for numbering in the billions. I have to think of my children now. The next time it speaks, I will kneel. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Scott and Eric. Thank you so much. And Joshua, big thank you, sir. Big thank you indeed. Thank you so much. Next up is Science News from Mr. JJ Campanella, Jim Squire. Greetings and ligations, my Susquehannally Air Quantic listeners, and welcome to this June 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this maliciously surreptitious collage of a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's get this show on the road. First story of the evening. In another attempt to get rid of human males, scientists have discovered a way of getting sperm produced by ovaries. Please, ladies, Western males are feeling useless enough at the moment. Do you intend to make us completely redundant? This is like turning into a bad science fiction movie. Sorry. Reported in the June 11th issue of Science, Dr. Toshiwa Nishimura of the National Institute for Basic Biology in Okazaki, Japan, uncovered a single gene that, when missing from female embryos of the Japanese rice fish, leads the fish to produce functional sperm soon after hatching. 
The gene FOXL3 is an ancient gene duplicate of the FOXL2 gene, which is known to be involved in mammalian ovary formation. But the function of FOXL3 was, well, previously unclear. Nishimura says, quote, In mammals, FOXL2 is well known to antagonize male somatic cell fate. And now FOXL3, well, at least in ricefish, seems to antagonize male germ cell fates, unquote. Nishimura's team created two ricefish mutants that resulted in no detectable expression of the FOXL3 protein. In female homozygote mutant fish, spermatogenesis, the process of making sperm, within the ovary was detectable a week after the fish hatched. Three weeks earlier than the typical timing of male puberty in rice fish, when sperm production starts. While spermatogenesis within the ovary was not topologically normal, as you can probably imagine, the resulting sperm were actually viable. Extracted ovary-produced sperm fertilized half of the eggs of wild-type female fish, and the majority of those fertilized eggs hatched. Other than producing sperm, the mutant fish were overtly female, and the absence of L3 did not affect the development of their surrounding somatogonadal cells. The researchers detected some oocytes within the sperm-producing ovaries of some of those mutant fish. Nishimura said this in an email, quote, Because the sperm could form in the context of female signaling and hormones, the results suggest that male cells may not register regulatory signals from female somatic cells, unquote. Sex determination mechanisms vary greatly among different fish species. Unlike many other fish in which temperature-dependent mechanisms determine sex, sex determination in the rice fish is chromosomally determined. And, by the way, please, take this all with a grain of salt. If you're a man's man out there, and you're actually worried about women taking over the world, it's unclear whether the results in rice fish will have any impact at all on the study or understanding of sex determination in males. Just because you could do this with a rice fish doesn't mean you could do it with any other animal on Earth. Next story. We are not quite as safe from prions as we once might have thought. Prions, well, you may or may not know this, are virulent protein uh, organisms. They're not really alive, so it's hard to call them organisms. But what they can do is, is they can create or convert, I should say, good proteins in your body to bad proteins. They're not viruses, they're not bacteria, and they're not alive in the least, as I said. Uh, scabies in sheep is caused by prions, and mad cow disease is caused by prions. And all of these fatal brain diseases have incubation periods that may last up to years. Prions have the ability to take good neural proteins and make them go bad, a bit like the FBI director believed that communists could do in the U.S. to right-believing Americans during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It was thought up until recently that prions could only reproduce in neural tissue. Well, yes, they could only reproduce in neural tissue, but just because of that doesn't mean that they can't be passed along in other ways. Let me explain. Dr. Claudio Soto of the University of Texas reports in the May 14th issue of the journal Cell Reports 
that grasses and other plants may actually take up prions from contaminated soil. Soto has been examining whether it's possible to get infected from contaminated plant sources. His team analyzed the retention of infectious prion proteins and infectivity in wheatgrass roots and leaves incubated with prion-contaminated brain material, and he discovered that even highly diluted amounts can bind to the roots and leaves of plants. When the wheatgrass was consumed by hamsters, the animals were infected with the disease. In another cherry finding, the team also learned that infectious prion proteins could be detected in plants exposed to urine and feces from prion-infected hamster and deer. Soto says, quote, The prion-plant interaction occurs with prions from diverse origins, including chronic wasting disease in deer, unquote. In addition, the researchers found that plants can uptake prions from contaminated soil and transport them to different parts of the plant. Soto concluded, quote, These findings demonstrate that plants can efficiently bind infectious prions and act as carriers of infectivity, suggesting a possible role of environmental prion contamination in the horizontal transmission of the disease, unquote. In short, we need to be careful of infected plant material now as well as infected animal material. Makes you wonder whether all produce will not at some time in the future be spot-checked for prions. Although they are thrilled to talk to you about bovine spongiform encephalopathy and deer-wasting disease, the CDC has no comment about the possibility of getting prions from contaminated plants, at least at the moment. Soto says, quote, All this research was done in experimental conditions in the laboratory. We're moving the research into the actual outdoors now and examining environmental contamination to see what's actually out there, unquote. And my hope, Dr. Soto, is that you find absolutely nothing. Well, the next story just adds another nasty layer to how cancer cells act abnormally from other cells in your body. For years, it's been known that all cells on Earth are governed by a 24-hour biological clock, the circadian rhythm. The clock drives fluctuations in gene activity and protein levels that give rise to daily cycles in, well, virtually every aspect of human physiology. It appears that cancer cells, besides being messed up in well, a dozen other ways, are also off the clock, so to speak. Dr. Carrie Parch University of California, Santa Cruz, writes about how cancer cells can silence circadian clocks in the journal Molecular Cell last month. Parch explains, quote, The clock is not always disrupted in cancer cells, but studies have shown that disrupting circadian rhythms in mice cause tumors to grow faster. And one of the things the clock does is set restrictions on when cells can divide, unquote. Parch examined a protein called PASD1, which has been shown previously to be expressed on a wide array of cancer cells, including melanoma, breast, and lung cancer. PASD1 is part of a larger group of proteins known as cancer testes antigens that are typically expressed in germline cells, which produce sperm and eggs. Parch states, quote, Understanding how PASD1 is regulating their circadian clock could open the door to developing new therapies. 
we could potentially find ways to disrupt it in those cancers in which it is expressed, unquote. The UC Santa Cruz team was able to discover how PASD1 was able to interact with the molecular mechanisms inherent in the biological clock. The circadian rhythm is regulated through a feedback loop controlled by the interaction of four main genes and the proteins which they encode. The proteins clock and BMOL1 initially combine to turn on the period and the cryptochrome genes. The period and cryptochrome proteins eventually combine to turn off the genes for clock and BMOL1. They found that PASD1 is structurally similar to the clock protein and interferes with the clock BMOL1 complex. Basically, the cancer protein shuts the circadian clock off very efficiently. When investigators blocked PASD1 expression in cancer cells, they observed that the clock cycle was turned back on within those cells. Parch suggests that these studies are very valuable because, quote, by understanding what makes the clock tick and how it is regulated, we may be able to identify points where we can intervene pharmacologically to treat disorders like cancer in which the clock is disrupted, unquote. Next story. Another scary organism may be at your door. Or at least if you live in Australia or New Zealand. Wow, you guys have had your share of alien organisms over the years, haven't you? You just can't seem to escape these things. Well, this threat happens to be a waddling fish that can walk on land. Dr. Nathan Waltham of James Cook University reports that climbing perch an invasive freshwater fish that can crawl on land by its gills and live out of water for up to six days would be a major disaster if they ever reached Australia. Unfortunately for Oz, they appear to be headed in that direction. I've seen this thing in videos, and frankly, it looks pretty darn harmless. It's kind of cute the way it waddles around, and it doesn't look like it could hurt a fly. Unfortunately, its helplessness is also its biggest threat or danger. It's not a predator. It is predated upon. However, when it is swallowed by birds and fish, it induces choking and death. Waltham says that their gill covers flex out when swallowed, and they get caught in the throats of fish and birds, which leads to the animals dying by choking to death. The perch is native to Southeast Asia and has spread south through Indonesia and Papua New Guinea in the past four decades, according to Waltham. Climbing perch have now populated the waterways of two Queensland islands situated less than seven miles off the southern coast of Papua New Guinea and 99 miles off the northernmost tip of mainland Australia. Researchers and rangers are monitoring the climbing perch closely, worried they might somehow migrate to mainland Australia. Waltham says if the invasive fish did reach the mainland, it would be a major disaster for native fish species and other wetland dwellers. In Papua New Guinea, Waltham discovered many species, including maramundi, catfish, and some aquatic birds that died after ingesting this nasty perch. The climbing perch can grow up to about 10 inches in length, and it can breathe on land through lungs that are next to its gills. They are known to hibernate in the mud of dried-up creek beds for up to six months. 
Waltham doesn't believe the perch are powerful enough to swim to Oz in that last 99 miles. He says what's concerning him more is that they may arrive in the bottom of fishing boats or as discarded live bait fish. So be on your guards. If you see one of those walking perch ambling by the side of the road, toss it on the barbie. You'll be helping us all out. Beauty, mate. Uh, sorry. All right. My lovely wife sent me the link for the next story, and I can't help but wonder whether she was trying to send me a subtle message of some kind. In a study published June 8th in Nature Neuroscience, Dr. Carrie Stephenson of Decode Genetics and Angen says she and her group have found genetic variants that can predict both creativity and a predisposition toward schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. In other words, a link between creativity and madness. Excuse me, honey. I don't think you're being very subtle here. Anyway, according to the paper, other researchers have found that a higher percentage of people with bipolar disorders are found in creative professions than in the general population and that writers are more likely to receive a diagnosis for psychiatric disorders than any other professional. But they write that this is the first time researchers have investigated whether or not the genetic variants that we might think of as negative are associated with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The real question is, is are these the same variants that predict creativity, something we think of as good, as it indicates that people are able to come up with new solutions to problems that other people couldn't think of. Stephenson decided to pursue this line of questioning because some of their prior research has shown that healthy people who carry genetic markers for schizophrenia show cognitive differences from normal people, the same sorts of cognitive differences that may explain why schizophrenia patients are better than normal people at logical deduction tasks that conflict with, quote, practical reasoning, unquote. Stephenson found gene variants by looking at two large studies in which people's genomes were examined who had schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Then the researchers looked at the genetic information of 86,292 people in Iceland. The same genetic risk factors that double people's risk for schizophrenia and increase the chances of bipolar disorder by almost 50% were also about 25% more common among creative professionals and people in national societies for writers, dancers, musicians, actors, and artists. Still, there are reasons to be cautious about these results. Don't go assuming your crazy college musician friend is just a few steps away from losing it, or that your painter friend is going to end up like Vincent van Gogh. The genetic connection the researchers found was significant, but still very small. Lots and lots of genes are involved in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, psychiatric illnesses that we are still very far from understanding entirely. The genes involved in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are probably broadly involved in all sorts of neurological and cognitive functions, including probably cognitive functions related to artistic endeavors. Stephenson says, quote, The variants we have studied explain less than a tenth of a percent of the genetic processes that are going on in abnormal behavior and creativity. 
In short, we are still far from a full genomic understanding of the connection between creativity and psychiatric disorders, unquote. Research like this is the start of understanding what our genomic blueprint actually means. It'll take time, but studies like this can build on other studies of the genome and contribute bit by bit until we have a full understanding of diseases like schizophrenia, and perhaps a full understanding of creativity. Okay, onward and upward. I am fairly certain that I have sleep apnea. And yes, you are hearing about this before my doctor. But I've done nothing about it so far. I suspect it's not helping either my energy, my general torpor, or my ability to function as the day goes on. I'm about as exhausted after eight hours of sleep as when I went to bed. Anyway, why am I telling you this? I understand that sleep is important for recharging the body, but until the next story, I didn't really realize how important it was. Dr. Paul Shaw of the University of Washington found that just feeding memory-deficient mutant fruit flies a drug to increase sleep by three to four hours per day over several days restores their performance on memory tests, according to a study published recently in Current Biology. Studying the benefits of sleep by promoting it in flies, as opposed to depriving them, has not been easy. Shaw says that he tested every drug in an attempt to adequately extend slumber, until he saw a study about the effects of a GABA-A agonist called gaboxidol at a scientific meeting back in 2010. Gaboxidol failed in late-stage clinical trials of people with insomnia because its side effects were concerning, especially for sleep drug abusers. But it hadn't been tested on flies. In the new study, Shaw and his team fed gaboxidol to two mutant fruit fly models for Alzheimer's. They were called Dunce and Rutabaga. He found that the drug restored performance on a test of short-term memory in which the flies had to remember to avoid a lighted chamber associated with aversive stimuli. The drug also restored long-term memory in both mutants. Shaw says, quote, Gaboxidol is not pathological. It doesn't cause negative outcomes, and you can start to ask questions by using it, unquote. Shaw's group boosted sleep several independent ways and found improved memory performance in all of them pretty much. What's more, the gaboxidol lost its benefit when the researchers sleep-deprived the flies who were taking it. How exactly sleep changes the brain to rescue the mutant fly's memory is a question Shaw's group is working to answer. He says, quote, there are multiple ways that sleep could rescue these mutants. It could recruit a circuit that's not normally used in memory formation, or it could change the cells themselves to make them perform better. We don't know which is the case, and of course, they're not exclusive possibilities, unquote. Given all that and knowing how badly my memory has been of late, no, not quite Alzheimer's yet, thank you very much, I think it behooves me to get tested for sleep apnea and perhaps get a solution for my sleeplessness. Last story of the evening, BPA. Again, we can't seem to escape it, can we? I have been talking about BPA literally for years, and it is still out there in the U.S. Canada has outlawed it, but 
There we go. We're behind. The good thing that has been going on is that chemical companies have been trying to alter plastic structure so that it no longer mimics estrogen. The bad news is that they are doing a really lousy job. It turns out that the chemical tweaks aren't enough to tame a rather dangerous component of those plastics. Bisphenol S, BPS, a common chemical in everyday plastics and papers, has the same toxic hormone-disrupting effects in cells and animals as bisphenol A. The findings are the latest to raise doubts that BPS, or perhaps all the phenols, are a safer component to BPA. The studies suggest that products labeled BPA-free, also such as baby bottles, are not as free of health risks as consumers might expect if they have BPS in them. In a study published February 26th in Environmental Health Perspectives, researchers found that BPS, like BPA, can boost heart rates and spur irregular heartbeats in female rats. And in February 3rd, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, researchers reported that BPS, like BPA, can alter brain development and behavior in zebrafish. The findings follow previous reports that BPS, like BPA, can mimic estrogen in humans and animals. The potential health hazards of BPS's estrogen mimicking remain unknown, but researchers have linked BPA to obesity, cardiovascular disease, cancer, infertility, neurological problems, and asthma. Even I can see, lousy chemist that I am, based on the Structural similarity, you'd expect that BPA and BPS would be similar. BPA consists of two identical ring structures linked by carbon and hydrogen atoms. BPS has the same structure, except its identical rings are linked by sulfur and two oxygen atoms. Pharmacologist Hong Shen Wang of the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, who was a lead researcher on the study that looked at the chemicals' effects on rat hearts, says he's amazed by how similar the effects of BPS are to those of BPA. Quote, they are nearly indistinguishable, if not identical, unquote. In Wang's study, both chemicals altered how female rats' hearts generated the electrical pulses that powered beating, causing the rats' hearts to beat faster. When researchers added a chemical that mimics the effect of stress on the heart, both BPA and BPS caused irregular heartbeats. If BPS acts similarly in humans, it might cause heart damage over time or put people with pre-existing heart conditions or stressful lives at higher risk of heart disease. The effects were seen only in female rats. Remember, both BPA and BPS act like estrogen, Wang explains, and the male's heart cells have a way of blocking that estrogen signal that the female rat cells don't. It's unclear if that would hold true in humans. Despite the damaging data on BPA, it's still being widely used. As I said earlier, in 2012, the Food and Drug Administration banned the use of BPA in baby bottles. Apparently, the rest of us can just go to heck. But few other restrictions are in place in the United States. Likewise, the use of BPS and the other bisphenols is not restricted at all now. I'm sorry, folks. I just report on this really depressing stuff. I don't write it. 
Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Get your sleep. If you see a walking perch, do not eat it live and whole. Continue to complain to your government reps about BPA and now BPS. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say, sir? Big thank you. Big thank you indeed. Thank you very much, Squire. So, do you work in Penzance? Penzance. Where's Penzance? Penzance or Wick? San Francisco, Johannesburg. Octagon Technologies hosted exchange server is for you. From 1995 to 2015, Octagon Technology helping business with their IT solutions. So, next up is the main fiction, and it is by my good friend, Mercurio de Riviera. D for David. We've published a number of stories by David or Mercurio. I just, like you say, snatched me another one, which was years ago we played that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, God, probably five, five, six years ago. Just a cracking little story that just reaching in into kind of into a different universe and getting plucked out. Oh, fantastic! Loved it, loved it, David. Anyway, this story was originally published in Paradox Stories, inspired by the Fermin Paradox, nominated for a 2011 World Fantasy Award in the short fiction category. Writer Mercurio de Rivera's spec fic stories have appeared in a wide wide range of markets, such as Asimov's. The year's best science fiction, 17, edited by Harwell and Kramer. Unplugged, the web's best SF and fantasy for 2008, edited by Rich Horton. In the zone, Black Static, Nature, Electric Velocipede, Abyss and Apex. Sybil's Garage, honestly, there's loads. Yeah, I could go on and on and on. Just an amazing writer, David. Oh, I just love it. Love, the, love the man, love the stories. Story is narrated by Jonathan Sharp. He was born in New Mexico in the nexus between Area 51, Trinity Site, and Spaceport America. He attended a culinary school in Portland, Oregon, and has managed a number of restaurants, cafes, and bakeries. By day, he is the produce manager for a natural grocery store. By night, practice narrations and voice acting while dreaming of a future filled full of world travel via sailboat along by his side his lovely wife, Paige. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Atonement Under the Blue White Sun by Mercurio D. Rivera Read by Jonathan Sharp The sharp wet flagellum pierces Jeffrey's chest and leaves him standing, wide-eyed, the red stain in his white shirt growing larger until he folds to the floor like a cardboard cutout. No, I scream, or I think I scream, but it's Melanie, my daughter, who's shrieking. She stands at the stairwell landing, her hands on top of her head, staring in horror at the mook. Run, Melanie, run! The slimy mook, rectangles within rectangles carved into its slick forehead, stops her screech with a single flick of another of its razor-sharp appendages, lobbing off her head and sending it rolling down the steps. My legs are trapped beneath the rubble from the collapsed ceiling. If I can get loose, if I can get to my feet before but the monster is already ascending the stairs in the direction of the second-floor nursery. Barb, Tia says. Stop. She places her hand on my wrist, and I snap back into focus as I'm about to take another swing at the blue vine with my machete. I look down at the creeper. It's as thick as my thigh, but I'd already severed it, minutes ago. 
I set the blade down in the murky swamp water where it floats by my knees. Wiping the sweat from my face with my shaking hand, I find that I'm breathing hard, maybe too hard, given the assist I'm getting from my exosleeves. Maybe it's the anticipation. Another alien ship is landing this afternoon. I'm fine. Right, Tia says. The sky is an eerie white. Tia and I stand on the edge of an expansive pond, our efforts over the past three days having cleared it of alien vegetation. Around us, our fellow Encelicorp workers and the goddamn abominations, the mooks, toil side by side, hacking at the underbrush, preparing to lay the foundation of our future colony. The temperatures are barely tolerable, ranging between a blazing 40 to 60 degrees Celsius during the day. My only solace is that it's supposed to feel even worse for the mooks. Is the new pod arriving today, I say? What, there aren't enough mooks for you here, Tia says? I adjust my UV goggles. Without the eyewear, the blue-white sun would keep me squinting to the point where I couldn't see my own hand if I held it up to my face. She's right. As it is, the freaks outnumber us two to one. They stand seven feet tall, slathered in an orange muck that stinks like spoiled milk. Their version of clothing. The moist film shields them against the sun and also supposedly allows them to breathe more easily through their pores. Their translucent, jellyfish-like skin is visible only on their face, which is remarkably human, except for the eyes. The damn purple eyes. The straight, lipless mouth and the unique pictogram they all have carved into their wide foreheads. Seven appendages hang loosely around their midsection, creating the illusion of a slimy hula skirt, and their three boneless legs bend backward as easily as they do forward. Some more are definitely coming, I ask. Tia goes back to chopping at a thick blue vine. I saw the scheduling log. The idea is to move the project along quickly. They say the mooks are committed to making reparations. I roll my eyes at the word reparations. They'll show, Tia says. And you think it's safe, I say? You think they wouldn't ambush us without a second thought? War's over, Barb. We're the bestest of buddies now, she says. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll get a good night's sleep. If you're going to make it through the assignment, you have to find a way to tune them out. Let them help us build the damn colony so they can move on and leave us the hell alone. Easy for her to say. Tia, like so many others working on this project, had lost family during the Titanian Massacre, but she never saw it happen firsthand. I take my frustration out on the tangle of knotted vines by my feet, hacking away at it. That's when I first hear the musical chimes in the distance. Less than half a click away from us. I shush Tia and the others around us. Even the mooks fall silent. A flock of flutes. The thin neon yellow eels, several dozen, dance atop the murky water, hitting notes on the musical scale that mimic a mournful, harmonized ballad. According to the terraforming team that surveyed this world, the flutes the highest form of life on this moon, are like crickets or owls or wolves, just dumb animals that generate interesting sounds. But as I listen to the melody of their complex song, I have my doubts. It wouldn't be the first time the core surveyors looking to meet quarterly earnings expectations paved over a sentient species or two. When the song's over and the flutes retreat beneath the waters, I stare over at Tia, and I can't be sure because of the goggles she's wearing. I swear her eyes have teared up. Sure, I've choked up a little myself listening to the flutes, and even a few of the guys are wiping their noses with the backs of their hands. But this is Tia we're talking about. Show's over, someone barks. Back to work. I grunt and scan the tools floating around our perimeter, searching for something sharper and lighter than the machete to tackle the thinner, knotted vines. Ten feet away from us, the ammonia stench of one of the mooks hits me hard. That's their way of signaling us. The monster holds up a blade saw in one of its red feelers. 
Are you looking for this? It says, extending a slick appendage in my direction. My name is Kanji 4. I glare at the mook until it finally takes the hint and sets the tool down in front of me. As it turns away, I say, Are you part of the new crew? Yes, my pod arrived this morning. One hundred of us. What? How could I miss that? I made sure to watch every other mook ship touch down, studied each creature as it emerged from the crystalline vessels. That's when I spot the other mook standing a short distance from Kanji 4. It had had its back turned to us the whole time while hacking methodically at the vines. Kanji 4 says, This is my podmate, Nettle 3. When the mook lifts its head, I immediately notice the pictogram on its broad forehead. Rectangles within rectangles. Him. I'm shocked into paralysis. I imagine myself grabbing my blade saw, charging at the creature, but I can't move. Barb! Holy shit! What have you done? The world spins. They're shouting all around me. I look down at my hand, which is drenched in red. I've severed off a finger with my blade saw. The next thing I know, I'm being rushed by Tia and two workers to the ship's infirmary. I lay in a gurney in the emergency ward while our project manager, Frank Ferguson, paces by my side, reading me the riot act. What part of tool handling 101 don't you get, he says. I can't have you losing your concentration every time you see a medusin. You've been absent-minded your whole stay here. I've heard that other workers are worried that you could hurt yourself. That sounded like Tia. I knew she had a soft spot for Ferguson, but I never thought she'd betray me this way. I figure I've let him vent long enough. The hand's good as new. I hold it up with a reattached index finger. Medic says I can go back to work tomorrow. Ferguson takes the seat next to my bed. Barb, do you want me to set up an appointment with one of the shrinks? His tone softens. I'd understand. It's a bit of a wait, though. Frank, I don't need a shrink, I say. But if you want me to see one, I shrug. He sighs. Look, I don't like being around the Medusans any more than you do. But if their soldiers want to make reparations for the families of their victims, there's nothing we can do about it under the terms of our treaty. They want to help build a new colony for the humans they displaced. We let them help. We wouldn't need their help if we deployed the bots. In fact, you, me, Tia, none of us would have to be out here. It's not my job, and definitely not yours, to question orders. The higher-ups think that working shoulder-to-shoulder with the mooks will help both sides atone for what they've done. I snort. Atonement. Did you really just say, so this is about making them feel better? I sit up in bed. I'm tempted to take a swing at him, but it wouldn't be a smart move with my still-healing finger. I said both sides. Hell, some of our own soldiers are doing the same thing on their colony worlds, he says. Like it or not, we're allies now. If we're going to stand any chance against the Surge, we'll need the Medusans' help. In the end, we're all soldiers. Don't you forget that. Fine. There's no point arguing with him if he's really playing the solids card. What do I care if our new enemies are holograms? It doesn't turn the mooks into saints. He points at me as if reading my mind. The Medusans didn't understand what they were doing. The mooks had encountered the Surge. Sentient simulacra. The hollows were brutal. Hostile and operated real weaponry capable of obliterating their enemies. Apparently, artificial life of this sort infests this arm of the galaxy. When the mooks encountered humanity, they thought we were just more of the same. It was all one big, tragic misunderstanding. 
Now, in the face of a common enemy, we're expected to forgive and forget and sweep the massacres under the rug. We need to find a way to turn the page. You understand, he says. Turn the page, I repeat. Got it. He glares at me. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. Stay focused, Jackson. I will. I promise. Glad to hear it. He scratches his left ear, which has a long white hair sticking out of it. Your team will be working closely with the new Medusan arrivals. My heart skips. I'm thrilled. But I have to find a way not to show it. Bad enough to have to work with the mooks, now I have to tutor them? Ferguson stomps around the bed and leans down so his face is an inch away from mine. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to politely welcome them. You don't have to socialize with the things. Act like a sphinx around them. Smile, laugh, frown, I don't give a shit. But you and your team are going to put on your exosleeves and bust your ass working side by side with the Medusans laying that foundation. Understand? I nod. He looks at me skeptically. Happy to hear it. Now get some rest. I need you back at work in the morning. We have a colony to build. The next day, I'm standing next to Tia in the glare of the blue-white sun while she grills me about my meeting with Ferguson, which I refuse to discuss. I'm still sore that she ratted me out to him. I try giving her the silent treatment, but after a few minutes, I finally cave to the urge to ask, Why did you have to tell Ferguson you were worried about me? At this, she lets out a long sigh, sets down her carry sack of tools. Because I'm worried about you. I can't have your lack of concentration result in someone getting hurt. Especially if that someone is me. And did you really say I need to see a shrink? Silence. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Barb, she says after an extended pause. That mook. That's him, isn't it? I consider lying, but with Tia, it isn't so easy. Yes, it's him. Just as I'd planned, just as I'd dared to hope for so many years, I'd come here for one reason. To kill the monster that had slaughtered my family. I could tell from your reaction. Look, I didn't say anything to Ferguson about that, but I admit I was trying to find a way to stop you from doing something you'd regret. Something I'd regret? <laughs> I snort. You don't know me at all if you think I'd regret killing that thing. No, I know you better than you think. We both get back to work, but after a few hours I'm faced again with the hard truth that I just can't stay angry with Tia. Soon I'm complaining to her about the heat, about the uncomfortable rubber boots I'm wearing, and she's telling me about all the fights that have broken out in the field. She's in the middle of a story about two humans who jumped a mook and held its head under the water, not realizing the freaks breathe through their skin pores, when I see two figures, one wearing a corporate uniform, splashing through the knee-high water in our direction. Holy crap, Tia says. It's Ferguson himself with the two mooks we talked to yesterday. I have to fight the urge to charge the creature when it's close enough for me to see the rectangles within rectangles carved into its slimy forehead. Taking deep breaths, I remind myself that they'd pull me off the monster before I could do any real damage. Barbella Jackson, Ferguson says. Yes, sir, I say. This is Kanji 4 and Nettle 3. The monsters release an ammonia stench. We search for balance. I struggle for the words, for any word, but nothing comes. After destroying my life, butchering my family, the creature doesn't even recognize me. We all have our designated duties, Tia says, after the silence that stretches too long. I suggest more work and less talk. Ferguson studies me and I want to look back at him, but I can't take my eyes off the monster. 
I'm not going to pretend I like this arrangement, I say. No one's asking you to, he says. Tia's right, we're all here to do our job. He turns and plods off with Kanji 4 in the direction of the next team, about a hundred yards downfield from us. After an uncomfortable silence, Nettle 3 powers up one of the power axes floating on the swamp water. He starts chopping at the blue vines, and we all get back to work. I stare at his exposed bare back, slathered with the orange ooze his kind wear. The evening ends abruptly on this wet moon, as if someone's yanked the drapes to block the blinding sun. It's the night of remembrance, and though it's strictly against the corpse feel-good protocols, the 153 humans from our camp, even the boss, Frank Ferguson, congregate around a blazing bonfire. I sit and listen as the workers begin their memorials. Tia is the eleventh person to speak, and, Tia being Tia, I half expect her to tell everyone to mind their own damn business. But instead, she says, I lost my parents and my two sisters, Letty and Arena, on Northern Titan. I guess you could say we were a typical family of planet hoppers. Mom and Dad started out on Luna, where I was born, before moving on to Mars and then Titan. Mom joked that my sisters and I resembled the worlds where we were born. I was as moody as Earth's moon. Letty was stable as Mars, and Arena, well, Arena was always on the run, a stereotypical Titanian. She pauses. I can't help but think if I had only been there. Maybe I could have made a difference. Others around the bonfire nod with a shared sense of guilt. I spent way too much time trying to find meaning in their loss. Then I stopped feeling sorry for myself and signed up with Encelicorp. I thought I'd be helping with the war effort. If I'd known we'd be sent to construct colonies, with the mooks no less, there's no way I would have signed up. But I'm here, and it's done, and there's a colony to be built. She lifts a canteen in the night air and says, To Mom and Dad and Letty and Arena. I lift my bottle as well, and everyone takes a swig. Almost as if on cue, the flutes begin to harmonize in the background as the storytelling continues. Each nest of flutes plays unique songs, only the tune they're singing tonight seems inappropriately upbeat. Not everyone speaks, but those that choose to speak of lost parents and dead children. Sisters tell of losing brothers, and wives describe becoming widows. They tell stories of divorcing and remarrying, of finding religion and losing hope, of relocating to other colonies, quitting their jobs, and changing careers. Every one of them describes how they somehow managed to find a way forward by joining Encelicorp, either through recruitment or enlistment. So many different stories with the same ending, but for all of them, the grief endures. When it's my turn, I consider saying something about Melanie's dry sense of humor, so much like Jeffrey's, or about how I'd read poetry to her at bedtime, or about Glenn's first steps. But the words, no, the words would bring them back to life, and I couldn't bear to lose them all over again. I declined to speak. Instead, I hold up a photo of Jeffrey and me wearing our titanium security uniforms, a pigtailed Melanie hugging my thigh. Glenn hadn't been born yet. Others nod and testimonials continue to my left. I stand and leave the group. As I'm heading back to my tent, Tia chases me down. Hey, she says. We walk together back in the direction of our encampment. I had a feeling there was something you wanted to say, she says. I don't respond and continue forward. Then again, what else is new, she says. After a few minutes, I finally say, It's Glenn's birthday. The day of the attack, we were having a party for him. 
He would have been eight years old today, and I can't imagine what he would have looked like. You know what I mean? It's the same with my sisters. They're frozen in time at the age I last saw them. I look over Tia's shoulder, past a patch of overgrown weeds, when I spot him crouching beyond the sight of the others. Nettle three. He's observing the gathering while braiding and unbraiding his feelers, listening to the workers' declarations. It's an invasion of privacy. I'm about to call him out to the others when it occurs to me that I want nothing more than to have him hear those stories. I want nothing more than for him to understand, truly understand, the suffering he and his kind have caused. Tia and I walk back to our tents in silence. For more than a week, the mook doesn't say a peep during our daily labors. The monster toils by our side, taking only a brief ten-minute break at midday when it descends beneath the shallow green water and stays there. How does it breathe? It makes my skin crawl to think of the mook at my feet, doing who knows what. The three of us are hacking at vines when one day it addresses me. Are you two unknown? I shrug and point to the translator node on his temple. He taps the node with one of his feelers. Is she your searching lover slash mate? Don't speak to me, I say. Does he think he's my friend that he can ask me such personal questions? He and I aren't lovers, but she means more to me than even that. We share something deeper. The agony of lost family. The suffering of the Titanium Massacre. I'd known her only casually before the massacre, but we've grown much closer ever since. I mean no offense. My own mate was killed on the Battle of Europa. I'm glad. I stare him down until he picks up his power axe and goes back to hacking at the creeping vine. When I turn to Tia, she gives me a disapproving glare. What, do you think I was too rough on him? I say, my voice dripping with sarcasm. She sidles up to me and speaks in a low voice. I'm worried about you, Barb. Back at corporate training on Enceladus, when you first told me about your crazy plan, I figured I'd humor you. I never thought you'd actually find the mook who killed your family. Look, you need to go talk to Ferguson. Get reassigned off this colony before you do something you regret. She's never been one to mince words, but then again, neither am I. I'm staying. A month later, the entire work crew is relocated a mile away to a spot where the waters cascade into a bottomless pit about 50 feet wide. Orlando's Pit, everybody unofficially calls it, because an engineer named Mike Orlando detected it while doing his radar survey, and it irked old Mike to have his name associated with a hole in the ground. The construction plan calls for us to create a drainage path that will make it easier to clear the land of all vegetation to lay the colony's foundation. The hundreds of workers stand in groups of three about 50 feet apart to form a straight line through the vegetation-filled swamplands all the way from the Emerald Pond to Orlando's Pit. The teams consist of humans and mooks, part of Encelicorp's grand plan to bring us all together as one big, happy family. During the hours of back-breaking labor, Nettle Three takes his place next to me and Tia on the line. A powerful stream has already formed from the cleared vegetation near the pit, which we're looking to extend to the Emerald Pond. On the third day of the project, the mook speaks to me again. Do you know of the searching? The translator bud on the mook's neck blinks off and on. Warburn? The what? I immediately hate myself for answering the creature. When my people enter the field of battle, we fall into a state of warburn. An 
Enzyme triggers our defensive instincts and casts us into a state of... Searching. A pause. It braids several of its flagella. A state of frenzy, of bloodlust. When I was war-burnt... He looks up and stares at me intensely with those hideous purple eyes. I did horrible things. Committed unforgivable acts. Of that I have no doubt. I asked to serve on this project to make amends, he says. Every one of us here asked for the assignment to do... Searching. Penance. When the war burn extinguished itself, the memory of what I did... It still haunts me. Every night, I force my skin to molt, hoping to shed the guilt. But still, I feel stained. You should. I hoped that by working here among your kind, I could... Pending. The translator blinks on and off repeatedly. He flicks one of his feelers against the device on his throat. A tone. At this, something snaps inside me, and I charge at him with my particle axe. But when I lurch forward, my boots slip in the mud. The next thing I know, I'm upside down in the scummy water swept downstream. I'm sliding forward only about a hundred feet from the pit, and I spot random workers pointing at me, hear cries for help. A sharp pain in my ankle jerks me to a halt. Jackson! The mook shouts. It's Nettle 3. The mook has dived into the stream and snagged my left ankle with one of its flagella, which is stretched almost six feet to its maximum length. His other feeler is also extended six feet in the direction of the stream's edge where Kanji 4's outstretched flagellum locks onto it. I'm coughing up swamp water. It's dangerous to ingest too much of this stuff, and I spot Tia standing next to the mook on the edge of the stream, asking over and over whether I'm okay. A dozen faces stand over me as I'm pulled out. My head smarts when I reach up to my temple. To the ship's infirmary! Someone shouts. No, I'm fine, I say. Just take me back to camp. No way I'm going back to the infirmary to have Ferguson rip into me again. Later that season, the Emerald Pond has almost been drained by the directed stream, leaving behind a bed of mud and wet soil. Five hovercraft drop tons of dry sand over the half-mile of the swamplands we've stripped bare of all vegetation. Any chance of building a solid foundation on the Potopoto requires clearing the marshes, then filling them with sand. Nettle Three approaches when he sees me, braids four of his feelers and asks how I'm feeling, as he does every day, despite the fact I never answer him. I've been trying to play this just right since Tia and several other workers have been watching me so closely. When I don't respond, the mook retreats. That's when I call after him. Nettle! He stops and turns to face me. Thank you, I say. Thank you for saving me. Over the next few weeks, I pretend that my acid hate is diluting. I make small talk with the mook, but I don't get too friendly. I have to sell this act to Tia and being too chummy wouldn't be believable. The sand is processed from the mud, which we scoop up and lug in sacks to the ship for treatment. With our exosleeves on full power, the labor isn't too intensive, and digging into mud and wet soil sure beats having to deal with that damned vegetation. We're shoveling mud into hover barrows when I ask Nettle 3, that thing you all do when you descend into the shallow water? Our daily pending. There's a pause again while the translator searches for the word. Prayers. You pray? I hadn't heard of any mook religion. He hesitates, and his purple eyes dart sideways in an unfamiliar expression. 
Perhaps a better word would be searching. Meditation. We seek answers from within. Answers to what? Many things. How we could have done what we did to your kind. He stares at me, but I look away. In the millennia that my people have searched the galaxy for other sentient life, we've encountered only unknown. He taps on the translator node, and the word comes. Remnants of countless civilizations destroyed by the surge. Any sign of advanced biological life attracts the holographic forces. They lack unknown. They are like ancient recordings of the dead, taking numerous shapes and forms. But their weapon systems are real enough. So there's no other life in the galaxy. His purple eyes stare at me. Any civilization that trumpets its existence through interstellar transmissions invites annihilation by the surge. No, if other sentient life exists, it is wisely in hiding. Have you tried to negotiate with the Hollows? They are oblivious to any attempts at communication. They assume the forms of those they vanquished, but they are not alive. They are like, like ghosts. I say, the ghosts of the galaxy. They have no ability to searching, empathize. I shake my head at his audacity. The irony is not lost on me. In the throes of the Warburn, I became no different than the Simulacrum myself. I committed obscene, unforgivable acts. All of my people did. This is why we do what we do here. I don't know how to respond. A few long moments pass, and I say, "So you mistook us for holograms? You expect me to believe you couldn't tell the difference between an electronic program and flesh and bone and gristle and blood?" Silence. You massacred more than three hundred thousand innocent people, and you think a little manual labor on this rock makes it all better? The mook leans closer and releases a pungent ammonia stench. Barbella Jackson, I expect no forgiveness from you or your kind. I don't pretend to deserve it. I toil here to bring balance to myself. I decide that I've put on enough of a show for Tia and the others. So I cut off our conversation and navigate a hover barrow filled with mud in the direction of our ship. It takes another two months to prepare the land for posting. A geotechnical drill equipped with an auger had been used by the surveyors to determine the necessary height of the support beams. Grade beams will be placed over the piles to spread the load of the colony platform across the foundation. Our work crew is on standby for the morning while the hovercraft drive the hundred-foot pillars into the sediment. A dozen such massive posts are pounded into the sandy terrain until met by the refusal of the shale rocks deep below. Only the upper ten feet of the pillars remain visible. A month after that, a large steel slab is positioned over the pile foundation, the beginning of the platform that will ultimately support the entire colony. With the first platform laid, laboring side by side with the mooks, we're able to start construction yurts. Temporary shelters that allow us to take down our tents and avoid hiking back to our respective ships so often. This enables us to work longer hours into the cool evenings and to speed up progress on the project. Each yurt is a cylindrical wall of poles in a lattice arrangement. No nails or other bindings hold it together, but rather simple gravity pushing each pole against the other and supporting the structure. It takes careful coordination with the mooks to set them up. The slightest misstep can throw everything off balance and cause the shelter to collapse. 
The yurts also lend themselves to easy dismantling once construction of the towers begins. It's close to dusk and we're completing construction on the 50th yurt when Tia buzzes me. She'd wandered off for just a minute and calls for me and Nettle 3 to join her at the edge of the platform, where the steel flooring meets the boundary of the swamplands. We've fallen into this routine every night, taking long walks together. Me, Tia, Nettle 3, and occasionally Kanji 4 hike into the border between the colony and the swamplands, where we assess the outpost's rate of expansion. Listen, Tia says. The familiar trills of the flutes fill the air, and when we peer below the platform, we spot a hundred of the creatures squirming in the now-drained land. They're trapped, Tia says. What do we do, I say. She shrugs. There's nothing to do. We can't touch them. They're toxic. The sound, Nettle Three says. Can you hear the change? What begins as a few soft notes from the nest creates a canorous chorus that intensifies until it's a full-blown symphony. Three of us stand there in awe. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And then the music fades, and there's silence. The flutes have dug into the sand, where they'll be dead by morning. It's been over a year since we first broke ground, and the colony now stretches five miles long. The days are still blazing hot, and they'll stay that way until the dome can be erected. And that's still a few years off. Tia and I have only signed up for the Foundation work, but I'm wondering if it makes any sense to go off-world, then return in a year when the colony is complete. This is supposed to be our new home, after all, and I guess it's starting to feel that way. They say that Nettle Three and his people will be leaving us after the Foundation is complete, and all human crew has been tabbed for a dome construction. That means time is running out. I've been carefully laying my own special groundwork over the past year, and if there's ever going to be justice, it has to happen soon. Work has become easier, more routinized. The first phase of the extensions to the colony's foundation is now complete. There will be future expansion, I'm sure, but the soil economy has been ravaged by the costs of preparing for war with the surge, so the colony's boundaries are set for now. With Kanji 4 having been reassigned to the northern end of the platform, Tia, Nettle 3, and I continue taking long walks together every night after our shift is over. Nettle 3 tells us stories about his home, a water world dotted with tens of thousands of islets, and about the members of his pod. Even Tia, who's not exactly a chatterbox, feels comfortable enough to talk about her parents and her two sisters who died on Titan. I'm reluctant at first, but I figure I'd tell them the story of how I first met Jeffrey at a hockey game, just to make it appear that I've finally let down my guard around Nettle 3. Without even realizing it, though, each evening I find that I reveal more and more about my life, I suppose it's because I'm pretty sure Nettle 3 still feels tremendous guilt, and it gives me some measure of satisfaction to remind him of the enormity of what the mooks have done to our people. I tell them about growing up on Titan with a demanding father, about Jeffrey's awful puns, about Melanie's obsession with virtual reality and her dream of becoming a code poet. I even tell them about how I decided to sign up with Encelicorp for an exo-engineering position, like my father and his father before him while Jeffrey stayed home and cared for Melanie, and later Glenn. Glenn. He had just started babbling and sucking his thumb. For all I've shared with them during our evening walks together over these many months, I still can't bring myself to say a word about Glenn. Tia hasn't brought up the subject. I guess she figures I'll talk about him when, if, I'm ever ready. My plan is coming along, slowly but carefully. I'm sure that Tia suspects nothing at this point, 
I've waited long enough that I can pretend now to forgive Nettle Three. Anyone watching me would think I've done so a bit at a time, hour by hour, day by day. I've pretended that the seeds of friendship with the Mook have taken root, just like in Selicorp dreamt. Mooks and humans working together on a project and finding some level of tolerance, maybe even camaraderie, so they can have each other's backs in their battle against the Surge. It was a neat idea, I think, but oh so exploitable. Tia mentions that Ferguson had asked to see her tonight. He made up some excuse about supplies that apparently had to be discussed off hours. The man is transparent, but Tia finds him amusing. I stand outside Nettle Three's yurt and whistle. Nettle Three opens the door and pokes his head out. I thought we had decided against walking together tonight, he says. I really need the fresh air. A minute later, he emerges and we begin our familiar trek westward, past the neighborhood of lit yurts. The conical roofs of poles are covered by brightly colored felts that give it a festive feel, which stands in stark contrast to the empty streets. The yurts will come down soon. Construction of towers made of soft brick and mortar are already in the works in the south. Nettle Three follows me silently. He says nothing when I head south instead of our usual route westward, and in just a few minutes we stand on the precipice of the southern platform. Beyond lies only the dark swamplands and something else. Fifty feet away from this spot, we can hear the waterfalls of Orlando's pit. Anyone falling off the platform would be swept away, just as I was a year ago, into the open maw, gone without a trace. The air is thick with heavy humidity. I find it hard to breathe. I duck under the chains that cordon off this area and clamber to the rim of the platform. Nettle Three not only follows, but trudges past me until he stands on the very edge facing out into the darkness. Do you remember our first days working here on this spot, he says? There was nothing here, just... Pending. Overgrown wilderness and marshland. And look what our great labors together have wrought. Yes, that was the idea. I'm a foot away from him. It won't take much. I have to do this. I move a step closer. Nettle Three stands there motionless, his back to me, utterly vulnerable. Jackson... He says, There's something I have to tell you, a truth you deserve to know. That story about my people mistaking yours for the simulacra. There's a long pause. You were right. It's not true. It was devised by your leaders during treaty negotiations. They felt the fabrication might make it easier for your people to accept us as allies. My heart pounds against my sternum. Then... Then why... why did you... We were at war. There is no justifiable why. I move closer, start to raise my hands, when a high-pitched whistle directly ahead of us pierces the silence, followed by several other notes. Flutes. I haven't heard the creatures in months. The colony construction had driven them far away from this area. The notes harmonize, and a playful melody grows larger and larger until it blares like a symphony. They play a song I know I've heard before. And then it hits me. It's the exact song played by the flutes that were trapped beneath the platform. That melody, I say. How can it be? I thought that each flute nest played a unique song. Yes, Nettle Three says. Those are the same flutes. But they were trapped. I went back for them. His translator makes a low beep that I've come to recognize as a chuckle. After you and Tia left that evening, I returned later in the night. 
I wore a full protective exosuit with lighting, placed them in a container, and transported them deep into the swamplands. I don't know what to say. Why should I care? After a long silence, he says, I know who you are. I've always known. He braids and unbraids his feelers, still facing away from me. Do what you must to find balance. Although only a few seconds pass before I answer, those seconds last an eternity. I... I don't know what you're talking about, Nettle. I exhale. Nettle Three turns, stares at me with his purple eyes, and says, Unknown. Followed by silence. It's his turn to pretend. I've decided to stay on here until the colony is complete. The rest of my pod is departing. But I want to see this through. The air smells cleaner, less saturated with humidity, and I find that I can breathe more easily now. For a few minutes, I simply stand there. I think about what Nettle Three has just told me. If he stays, I can wait for another time. Another opportunity to make him pay. I open my eyes, turn around, and head back toward my yurt. I hear Nettle Three shuffling a few steps behind me. If I could read his facial features, I suspect I'd see surprise. I'm surprised myself. And when I look ahead, I'm struck by the beauty of the colony, its bright lights, the endless rows of colorful yurts, and, in the distance, the glorious new towers that rise into the star-filled sky. There you go. David, sir, thank you very much. Don't forget, copyright is Mercurio D. Rivieras. And a big thank you to Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan, what can I say? A big bear hug, sir. Thank you very much. That is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Keep trundling on there, don't we? Keep, just keep going. Bloody hell, time flies. Don't forget, if you want to kind of help with this show as well, you know, donate, that would be pretty useful at this moment in time it would really help just links are on the front of the website if you want to kind of do a monthly donation or if you want to kind of sign up for a, the sofa notes private members club where you get oodles oodles of stuff ebooks and all sorts until next week just like to say good night from me <laughs> survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.